Proverbs chapter 23, if you'll turn back there with me if you're not there yet. Last time in our study together, we worked our way in chapter 23 down as far as verse 18. We pick it up this evening in verse 19 of Proverbs chapter 23, where the writer says, Hear, my son, and be wise. So again, there's that invitation, the exhortation, the fatherly figure, the older generation speaking. Again, we see this many times throughout the book of Proverbs to the younger generation trying to pass on wisdom, trying to pass on insight that would be helpful. Again, we should certainly all be inclined, even if it's just as sons and daughters of God, He's saying, here, listen up, I want you to be wise, and then he tells us a way in which we can directly be wise, and that's simply this, verse 19, he says, and guide your heart in the way. Now, I have that underlined, I've always enjoyed the principle there in the book of Proverbs, this book that gives us such a workshop on wisdom in all kinds of different areas, because this is an area where a lot of times we have all played the fool from time to time in our lives. You know, one of the common cliche phrases that we've all heard sounds very you know, romantic and beautiful. People say, look, you just got to follow your heart, man. Just, just, just follow your heart. Just let it guide you. Just sometimes you got to just go with your heart and let your heart. And, and, and God's word says that's a really dumb idea, actually. It's a really foolish idea. In fact, the Bible tells us in Jeremiah chapter 17, God, who's the ultimate physician, being able to give us the greatest x-ray and understand the cardiac condition, not physically of our heart, but the, you know, the inner person, who we are at the epicenter of our being, morally, spiritually. Jeremiah 17 says that God's diagnosis is the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And he says, and who can even know it? The idea is, you're not even able, and I'm not even able at times, to know our own heart condition. Again, he says it's deceitful above all things, secondarily desperately wicked. So it's already desperately wicked, and God says, but even more than it's desperately wicked, it's deceitful above all else, which means my heart can deceive me about its own desperately wicked intentions and desires and inclinations. And so we have to be very, very careful because, you know, just like... Uh, you know, the song we sing, a worship song, one of the songs says, you know, my heart deceives me, my feelings lie, they're always drifting like an ocean tide, uh, and there can be times, whether it's just the mood we wake up in, or the physical condition, maybe that we're going through in a moment, or our own passions for something, or circumstances, wherever it may be, that at times there are desires and drives in our hearts, there are inclinations within us that are prompting us to maybe go a certain direction or pursue a certain thing or not pursue a certain direction. Maybe sometimes we're being governed by fear in our heart or whatever it may be, but there are many times that our heart can misguide us and it can misdirect us. So we have to be really, really careful. And that's why the Bible says that wisdom understands to be wise is not, notice, to follow your heart, but look what he says guide your heart. Guide your own heart in the way. In other words, wisdom understands that our heart can be drawn towards wrong things and its feelings, desires, and ideas, so we don't just follow the inclinations of our heart because that many times can get us off track in the wrong direction into things that we should not be involved in because we're being led by our heart deceiving us. 
but we have to guide our heart by directing it through the exercise of our own will, through the exercise of our own will. And again, the best way that we can guide our heart in the way, certainly the most important thing we can do is to always be bringing our heart before the Lord and seeking the Lord, being in his word, letting the power of his word and the power of the Holy Spirit and through prayer and seeking the Lord, give God the best possible chance to write his will onto the fleshly tablet of our hearts. And being willing to come before the Lord and saying, Lord, take away this heart of stone. Give me a heart of flesh. Make my heart in line with your way and your direction. But again, we have to always kind of keep ourselves in check and be very careful. And when necessary, have enough wisdom to recognize, you know, my heart may be inclined in this direction, but the bottom line is if that's not in accordance with the way of the Lord or the way of God's word, then I've got to guide my heart to come into alignment with that through an exercise of my will. I have to, by faith, say, you know what? I'm not going to follow my heart in this. I'm going to follow the truth of God's word, and I'm going to guide my heart onto the right track by making decisions of the will and of my own conscience and making good and right choices. And here's the thing I can tell you, I know I've experienced in my life, is that when we make right decisions and we guide our heart according to making right decisions, eventually your feelings will catch up. There may be a little delay, and I have to say this to married couples all the time. With the, well, I, we don't, I don't feel like I love her. I don't feel anything towards her anymore. I don't feel anything. That's being honest, okay. But that doesn't change the reality of what's right and wrong in a covenant and commitment. And I always tell them, Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, whatever your treasure is what's valuable to you, and it's what you invest in. And when you make investments and you accumulate a treasure, your heart is inclined towards what you're invested into, the idea is, right? And so that's why many people, because their heart is inclined so much towards their finances is because all their money's, well, what's the stock market doing? What's my 401? So that's what they're always concerned about because that's what they're vested in. Well, the same is true in every other arena of life. One of the best ways you can guide your heart, like the proverb says, in the right way is make investments, make choices, just do the right things, make the good and right choices according to the way of the Lord. And eventually, even if your desires and emotions are over here, eventually, as you put that, your treasure investing in the right way, eventually your heart will catch up. Eventually your emotions will come into alignment. And it's a wonderful thing. Just keep doing what's right, keep guiding your heart and wait for it to catch up. And it's wonderful how God has a way of doing that in due time. So great, great principle to keep in mind as we're navigating life and trying to make decisions to guide our heart in the way. It's a wise way to live. Verse 20 and 21, he says, and do not mix with wine bibbers or with gluttonous eaters of meat. These are the individuals, the picture here of those who are engaged in the, the party life, right? The drunkard or the glutton there's a picture of someone who's overindulging, right, in selfish enjoyment. It represents that party life kind of individual. And they end up, because of that pursuit in an unhealthy way of indulgence and pleasure and luxury and, again, self-indulgent living to excess, they end up suffering as the result of that due to their irresponsibility. They struggle, he says, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. And so oftentimes we see that, you know, when someone lives 
in the excess of overindulgence, whether it's drinking alcohol or any form of overindulgence, you know, eating too much or just, you know, the idea there is just, again, just kind of that irresponsible luxury party life, giving yourself to excess self-indulgence, it always ends up that irresponsible living to causing a person to come to a place where circumstantially they start to struggle and they don't have what they need. Sometimes maybe legitimately they find themselves in an impoverished condition or in poverty or homelessness because of you know excess alcohol or drinking or wasting money. And that can be one of the major contributing factors we know that happens to people at times but it ultimately robs us of being in a good and healthy place. So he says here that wisdom advises to us, notice, don't mix with such individuals. Those individuals are going to be out there, and we certainly don't want to live in that way. But he also says you got to be careful that you don't end up mixing with the ideas associating through friendship and relationship, making them your social companions Because as we've talked about before, your friends will always influence you. And so that's why the Bible tells us to select our friends carefully. We've seen that concept mentioned a few times in the book of Proverbs. Wise people, the Bible says, don't socialize with those who are heading in wrong directions. And again, any of us who maybe did that for a season of our life where that was our group and we mixed and hung out with the party life and the party people, and we found that we ended up just being influenced, doing the same things, suffering the same conditions and consequences. So wise people use judgment and realize, hey, those people are heading in the wrong direction. It'd be wise not to interact with them and instead to look for people who are heading in the right direction, select healthy people to mix with that are going to give good influence in your life and journey with them so that you end up at the right destinations rather than the wrong destinations of regret in your life. Verse 22, he then says, Listen to your father who begot you, and do not despise your mother when she is old. So here's this exhortation to the younger generation, to their parental generation. Above them there, he speaks of the wisdom, first of all, in verse 22, of taking into consideration the valuable input of your father due to his greater experience in life and the influence that that can bring to help against someone who loves you and cares about you and has a whole generation of life experience beyond you that gives with it wisdom and understanding. So he says, look, don't despise that. Listen to your father who begot you. Just take advantage of that. It's someone who cares about you. They have a vested interest. Pay attention if they're offering you input. Often there's worthy consideration of that advice. And then he also says, secondarily, regarding our mother, don't despise your mother when she is old. That is, as she gets to her elder years or her latter stages of life. And I think that's just a a reminder there as well, both certainly the mother, but certainly the father as well. But, you know, we think of our mothers and, and, and our mothers basically, you know, pour out the absolute best of their life and they give the best of their years and the best of their life to us, raising us, sacrificing, you know, doing all the things to an extent that we never even fully understand as they're raising us. And so he basically says, look, they gave you the best of their years and the best of their lives. So when the time comes that they're aging and they're deteriorating and the roles begin to reverse and they need assistance and they need care, he says, you know, don't despise them in that season. Don't devalue the importance of paying back, in a sense, uh, what you owe to them to give the best of some of your life efforts to taking care of them when that need exists. 
He goes on to say, verse 23, buy the truth and do not sell it. Also, wisdom and instruction and understanding. So this speaks of sometimes the necessary price that we may all have to pay to some degree to gain the truth, to be able to get out from under error, to increase our understanding, to develop a greater knowledge of God, to deepen our understanding of the truth of God's word, to be able to gain greater wisdom. We read before, you know, he who walks with the wise grows wise. And here he speaks of the idea of buying the truth. Again, when you buy something, the idea is there's a cost attached. You know, you have to be willing to pay the price the idea is. And so he basically says, look, no matter what price you and I may have to pay to get the truth, it's worth it. Pay the price, right? To a degree, you all in some way paid the price this evening to come to the house of God to get some more of God's truth and some more of God's wisdom and understanding. You drove here, you paid some price for the gas, you sacrificed some degree of your time. You could have been doing something else this evening. I don't know, maybe watching a reality show to really benefit your spirit or something edifying, you know. I mean, there are probably other things, but, but you, you chose to make the sacrifice to, 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 to depart from your home and to put on your jacket and to come out into the cold in the winter and drive your car over here and maybe go to bed even, some of us, you know, go to bed a little later than what you normally would have because the time you get out of here and go home and I went, and, hey, that's past my bedtime normally, but you chose to pay the price. And so the Bible says, look, there is a worth to gaining truth, to gaining wisdom, to gaining understanding, and that's a good thing. And he says, wisdom understands it's worth the cost. I don't know about you. There's never been a time I've made a sacrifice to learn more or to get more truth from God or to read my Bible or go to a Bible study or gain more wisdom by God's impartation in some way, however it came about. There's never been a time when, man, that was a waste of time. That was a waste of money. I never say that, right? It's always worth the price and worth the cost. Some people sadly live in an impoverished spiritual condition because they just don't want to pay the price. Uh, they don't want to make the additional sacrifice. They don't want to put in the cost of commitment or time or efforts or energy. And in some ways, they, they forfeit you know, the additional truth and wisdom and instruction and understanding. So again, whether that's biblically and spiritually or maybe just in other forms of learning, it's, it is a cost, but it's a, it's a worthwhile cost to pay because of the benefit of gaining those things. Verse 24, he says, the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who begets a wise child will delight in him. So verse 25, let your father and your mother be glad. The idea is by being that wise child, by being that righteous child living in the sight of your parents, let them be able to rejoice and be glad let those who bore you rejoice. Now, this reminds us much of what we kind of just saw back last week in the earlier part of the chapter, verse 15 and 16. He said, my son, if your heart is wise, in other words, if you as a parent see your child and their heart is, is demonstrating wisdom and they're making good decisions, they're exercising a wise way of living, he said, my heart will rejoice, my inmost being will rejoice when I see your lips speaking right things. And so this is the idea John talks about in the New Testament. I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. You know, and every parent wants their child 
to do well. And honestly, most parents usually want to see their children do better than they did. It's like a coach, right? You, you want to see them go further, you, especially if you had the privilege to raise them in some ways in the ways of the Lord. Or, and if you live for a good season of time without that, you're thinking, man, I don't want you to waste some of the years that I did. I don't want you to have some of the battle scars that I have. And you want to see them live well and live wisely. And there's nothing more enjoyable than when a father or a mother is able to see their child live in a righteous way and start making good decisions, godly choices, living in a way that's right before the Lord, exercising wisdom. And so he says, man, when a child does that, that is one of the greatest, in a sense, paybacks they could give to their parent. One of the greatest rewards to let them have that fruit of being able to rejoice and celebrate and find delight in seeing their child live in a way that's wise and godly and such a beautiful thing. And so he says that that delights the parent's heart. And so he says to the child, let your father and your mother be able to be glad. Uh, So for those who are on the child end, he says, look, do it for them. Give them the chance to be glad because the opposite is true. When a child doesn't live well, it just, it breaks the heart of a parent, right? And it causes them tremendous sadness. So one of the best ways we can bless our parents even is to live well. And again, we become low maintenance children. That's always been my goal. That was my mentality was, was when I moved out of the house is okay. They, they put, I want to be a low maintenance child now in my adult years. I don't want to have to, you know, come back around for a second raising or finish fixing me or, or teach me a little more or bail me out of this. Or, no, I want to be low maintenance as low maintenance as possible. I want to be a blessing as an adult child and not a burden. And I think that's kind of the idea here, wise children seek to do that to bless their parents. Verse 26, he says now, again, the father seeming to speak to the son, the parent to the child, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes, watch what he says here, observe my ways. Now, I like this. I think this is a great parenting insight that the best parenting really that influences the heart of a child better than anything else is this word, modeling. Modeling. As parents, we speak a lot, we talk a lot, we tell our kids to do this, we ask our children to do that, we instruct them, we exhort them, we guide them. But the crucial thing is above all else, we need to show them. We need to model for them by the way that we live in our lifestyle, how we process choices, how we navigate hardships, what matters to us, what our priorities are. I love that he says there, my son, give me your heart. Again, what parent doesn't want the heart of their child? Give me your heart. And he says, give me your heart, son, and let your eyes, look what he says, observe my ways. We want to be able to say that as a parent and say it with confidence that there is something that our life will win the respect by its example. And this is the idea of modeling here, that our children would observe our ways. It speaks really uh, of the parent who's able to speak into their child's life, not just with their words, but by their example, because their life and how it's lived and the way it's lived, it speaks with the greatest credibility because of the modeling. And so, again, this is something that we all can do as parents and we should do, and especially we don't want there to be a discrepancy between saying things with our words. I can tell you over the years, you know, one of the greatest problematics I've seen, particularly among the church and kids being raised, you know, among the ways of the Lord and and so forth, and, and at times, you know, talking to children, sometimes they're even adults at that point or talking to teenagers or whatever, and look, at a certain age, they're not dumb anymore. 
and they see the discrepancies. Oh, and dad says this, and mom says that, and they tell us this, but, you know, and, and they make us go to church every Sunday, but the way that we live all week long, it, it's kind of a little bit different. Or, or, or dad says you should do this, or mom says that you should live like that, and, and they, you got to put the Lord first, and then I kind of watch the way they live, and they kind of seem to live with different priorities. And so that causes tremendous confusion. And so we want to do everything we can to guard against that and show our ways to our children because, you know, that credibility will give such impact in our kids' lives where they will look at us, and in some ways you don't even have to say a word. They just say, you know what, I see the way my dad's lived. I see the way my mom's living. I want to emulate that. It's true, it's credible, it's real. And so again, just very, very important, very insightful. And again, even if you've got teenage children, adult children, this is still a very powerful thing because it, it's one of those taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, I wanted my children to grow up catching me having my devotion, seeing me on my knees here and there praying. I, I wanted that. You know, I remember occasions when my girls were little and sometimes they you know, come in, I'm on my knees praying or something, and, oh, sorry, Daddy didn't interrupt this is fine, honey. You want to join me? Or, yeah, I, just, I, I was happy they found me on occasions because I realized that was a teachable moment. I didn't even implant it. They just, they saw something. I wanted my kids to see my ways, whether they liked it or not, even when they were younger, that as for me and my household, we serve the Lord. This is what we do. This is how we live, honey. That we, we put priority on the things of the Lord first, and that's why we do these things and we don't do those things. So again, modeling, 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 great, great parental importance. And again, as we talk to parents to help them to understand that and pass that on as well, that observation proves this reality. And you've heard this before, much more is caught than is taught. And things get caught by observation. Verse 28, he says, and perhaps here, excuse me, verse 27, maybe he's in some way speaking to that son still. For a harlot, he goes on to say, is a deep pit, and a seductress is a narrow well. She also lies in wait as for a victim and increases the unfaithful among men. Now, perhaps again here, this is the, the father figure speaking to his son and cautioning his son as a young man of one of the greatest dangers that exist to men, and that's getting in trouble with an immoral woman through sexual immorality and giving in to his lusts and his passions. And we've seen many times through all these chapters of Proverbs, we even saw a few chapters concentrated on this idea of being careful of this woman who the Bible references as the harlot, the seductress, that is one who knows how to work her way with men through seductive dressing, seductive speaking. And again, some women do this for even just at times the simple motive of some women, it's just they hate men. And some women, in their hatred of men, would gladly do anything to bring a man down just to overpower man because they despise men. It's not just that women are seductive in ways that we often think. There are many different things. But what is true is that when a woman turns on the seductive charm, like we've seen before, sometimes like an ox to the slaughter, men get drawn into that and get pulled off track. And here he says, be careful, my son. Observe my ways. Maybe he's trying to say to his son, look, I, I try and stay as far away from that narrow pit and well as I can, because if you don't go near a well, you don't fall down it. And maybe he was saying, do you see the way I do things, son? I won't even get alone or near a well. I, I don't want to fall down the well, <laughs> because if I go over there, I might try and just look in and wonder what, how far the water is down, and, then, and all of a sudden you fall into the well. 
And so he says, just like a narrow well or a deep pit, he says, is the woman who lies in wait for a victim and increases the unfaithful among men. Again, we must warn the younger generation, and especially young men, of this danger and destruction of sexual immorality. How sad the casualties at times when men become victims, seduced to engage in you know, lustful pleasure, and then they get like that narrow well or the deep pit, then they get stuck. That's the idea there. Stuck in a narrow well, you're stuck. And you're in a difficult spot. You're stuck in a situation now. And he says, like a victim and an unfaithful man, you can really defile your reputation and, and have a lot of difficulties that come in connection to that. Now, verse 29 down through verse 35, you'll note as we read down through this section, it's all on the same subject. It basically gives to us in the book of Proverbs here another of a few warning about the problematic outcome of, of over indulgence, overuse of alcohol, which then translates ultimately into addiction to alcohol, where alcohol goes from recreational to beginning to actually control a person's life and gets them into some real problematic situation. So it's a warning of the problematic alcohol of overusing it to a wrong degree where it starts to get out of control. And here's the thing, I would just say on the front end of this, there's no guaranteeing when you lose control. So hear the words of the Proverbs. Hear the wisdom. Watch the warning. He says, verse 29, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search looking for the mixed wine, checking out the wineries, we might say. So notice what he describes here. Those who are indulging in alcohol, finding it an enjoyable thing, look what it brings. Okay, look what he says, verse 29. Here's what it brings. He says it brings woes. That describes emotional problems, mental issues. He describes it brings sorrow. That describes painful regrets and grief over many things, sadness and depression. He says, who has contentions? Who has lots of contentious problems? That speaks of social, relational problems, issues with people in our lives, tensions and arguments and disputes and, and tense and ruined relationships. Who has lots of complaints in their life? The idea is they're never happy or satisfied. Things always seem wrong to them. Or on the other side of that, complaints in the sense that everybody who's connected to them with them always drinking is always complaining about them and what the alcohol is doing in their life and the way that they're conducting themselves because they're a drinking relative. And he says, if that's not enough, who gets to have wounds and redness of eyes? That speaks of physical ailments, health problems and health issues. And so again, he says, do you want some emotional problems? Do you want a few mental issues? Would you like relationship problems and a life filled with complaining and physical problems? Go ahead and drink. Go ahead and drink, he says. That's typically what gets connected to that. He says, verse 31, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup. Yeah, I think it's enticing. It looks good. When it swirls around smoothly. Isn't that interesting? You, you know, I, I don't drink, but I, I, you watch people sometimes, you know, show where they're like testing the wine. They... They kind of do this, and they, 
they whatever sniffing or something, but there's a swirling. It's right in the Bible. Like it just it's interesting. It swirls around in the cup. You know, God knows exactly what humanity does. At last, he says, verse 32, it will bite like a serpent and sting like a viper. So God says to the one who's indulging and overindulging alcohol, he says, Yes, it's tempting, but beware, it's deceptive, he says. It can become very deceptive. It promises pleasure, it looks enjoyable but it can produce some really painful problems because he says it deceives in a way where before you know it, like a sneaky serpent, it, it sneaks up on you and that it ends up poisoning your whole life. Look, I, alcohol abuse and alcohol addiction in our culture, not even counting drug addiction, is a major, major dilemma in our society. And in some ways, kind of gets, in some ways, I think, unnoticed and overlooked to a much greater degree because it seems like a, a cleaner, more refined way of people conducting themselves than those maybe who were abusing heroin or crack cocaine. or And so he says, look, th this exists, and I assure you this, I have never met anyone who has ever found their life poisoned and, and becoming toxic because of alcohol in a sneaky way catching up and poisoning their life, who said, you know what, I just that was always my plan. I wanted to just poison my life. I was hoping that someday I could become an alcoholic. That never happens, right? It, it just, it grips people. And the serpent just slowly winds itself around and, and, and in a sense begins to take over control and neutralizes its victim. He says, verse 33, your eyes will see strange things. Boy, isn't that picturesque? Your heart will utter perverse things, right? Well, that's a picture of the party life there. All of a sudden, your eyes seeing things differently. When people are under the influence of alcohol, it destroys your good reasoning. Your perspective is very different than when you're sober and when you're thinking clearly, right? It, it, it has the result of us making at times as human beings when we drink horrible choices. It causes problematic consequences. We end up saying things, uttering foolish things that we never would. Verse 34, yes, he says, you will be like the one who lies down in the midst of the sea, the idea is you're on a boat now, there's the picture, or like one who lies at the top of the mast, you climb all the way up to the top of the mast saying, they have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. In other words, I, hey, I, and I was so drunk, I got on everyone's nerves, they beat me up, but I, I, didn't, I didn't even feel it. You just wake up the next day with black and blue face, and you're all buttoned. What, what in the world happened last night? And again, you know, things happen. You're bringing harm upon yourself. But look at the end, verse 35. I wake up and I say, but when shall I awake that I may seek another drink? There's the end result of that, kind of sad. In the end, all that's cared about is where do I get the next drink? Where do I get the next fix? Again, all just temporary gratification. Look, I would just say, when you read what God's word says about alcohol, please always take notice in the midst of, oh, I have freedom. I'm not arguing that. I'm just telling you that when the word of God speaks about the usage of alcohol, typically it's always in a very cautionary, negative manner. There's not a lot of encouragements other than Paul telling Timothy to use a little wine medicinally. Most of what is spoken of is not in an encouragement, but a cautionary sense and negative outcomes. I mean, look what he describes here. 
woes and complaints and problems and emotional issues and relational issues and you're making poor choices and seeing things wrong and saying things wrong and getting beaten up and, and all you're doing now is looking for the next drink. And again, substance abuse, the picture here is a real way to begin to abuse a life. And sadly, this happens in lives. And I think it's just a good reminder, the wisdom principle above all else, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, folks, whatever it may be, not all freedoms are wise to partake of. Not all freedoms, yes, there are freedoms, but not all freedoms are wise to partake of. And you gotta weigh that out when you're trying to live wisely Versus foolishly. 1 Corinthians 6 says it this way All things are permissible, but not all things are helpful. All things are permissible, but I will not be brought under the power or the control, the idea of anything. Notice, permissible, yes. Is there a permissibleness? Yes. But he says, everything that's a freedom is permissible isn't always necessarily helpful for our lives. And everything that's permissible and is a freedom, I have the freedom to do this. You technically do, but the question you have to ask, he says, all things are permissible, but I don't want to be brought under the power or control of anything in my life, and that's the thing we don't know when we exercise our freedom. How do you know if it's going to take control of you? How do you know if you're going to ultimately become enslaved to it? That's the gamble, the idea is there, and so it's the thing that we have to, to, to kind of rationalize out. You know, I think the questions to ask when it comes to biblical freedoms are really things like, do I really need it? Is it worth the risk? I mean, those are just things that we should weigh out wisely. What, not always, what can I do? But sometimes it's what can I do without? What can I live without? Does, does doing this thing that's a freedom, does it help my spiritual life? If it doesn't, then maybe I don't want to do it. And if doing this particular thing that I have freedom to do, if it could ensnare me and rob me of my freedom and potentially ruin my life, then sometimes I'm going to say, you know what? There are enough things that could ensnare me and ruin my life. I'm not going to sign up for one more. <laughs> there are too many other things I'm trying to stay away from, from trapping me and tripping me up. So again, just important to weigh out the way that God portrays this for us. Chapter 24, verse 1, he says, And don't be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. For their heart devises violence, and their lips talk of troublemaking. So notice, though those who are evil people who are doing evil things, they may prosper for a season on this earth. And that's, that's the quandary, right? We see people living in evil ways, doing wicked things on earth, and they may prosper for a season. But in due time, the Bible always reminds us, that does come to ruin. And so what God is cautioning here is that false image of success to realize that evil person did not gain that success or they're not enjoying that prosperity through a legitimate basis. They're just making trouble for others. They're doing things that are wrong. It's a false image of success. And God's saying, look, don't envy those people or want to be like them. It's foolish to give into that temptation, he says, because it's not an admirable way to be succeeding in life. There's nothing to be admired about that. If anything, we should seek to try and succeed and prosper by thinking of the long term and doing things the right way rather than setting ourselves up for an ultimate crash, which is the way that they would be succeeding. Verse 3 says, and through wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it's established, and by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. So a house, again, if we think of that from a 
Again, it's a picture here from a literal perspective with physical construction. A house is built, right, through many different processes over a period of time. That's how a house is built. There's the planning stages, there's the blueprints, there's the approvals and the permits, and then there's leveling and clearing the ground, and then the, you know, digging out, laying the foundation. Again, there's, there's all these processes over a period of time, and then as that's done, then ultimately the house is set up as functional to live in, walls are put up, rooms are established, eventually the drywall goes up, and then the paint is picked, and then the decorations, and again, now we're just making the house nicer, we're making its value increase. We're doing more things again through decisions to improve using wisdom and good judgment, understanding how to navigate that is important because he says that's what ensures having a pleasant experience in the home and ultimately allows the home to have the greatest value long-term if it was built wisely in a knowledgeable way with know-how through a process of decisions gradually a little bit over time. Now, he uses that, no doubt, as a picture to say the same concept is true with building a life, right? Jesus talked about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, the wise man, remember, and the foolish man who built their houses. And he said, one, the foolish man built his house on the sand, and the storm came, and great was his fall. The wise man who heard Jesus' teachings and put them into practice by good decision-making and carrying out the truths of the Word of God, he says that that person built on the rock, on a good, solid foundation, and it was able to endure the test of time and the storms of life when it came. Well, this is the picture here. When we read this, I don't think God's just concerned about building a physical house. God's concerned about building our lives, building a home, building a family, building a marriage. And the concept is true here. It's a process of many decisions over a period of time. And the goal is through wisdom in different processes over a period of time to keep using wisdom and making good choices to ultimately wisely build your life as a person, to wisely build your marriage, to wisely build your family and your home life in a way where you establish a good foundation and then you continue to do things through a process to enhance, to make things better, to make your marriage more pleasant, to make your family life more valuable by using wisdom and knowledge. And he says, and if you do this in time, it will not only give you a good stable foundation, but he says it will bring pleasant experiences rather than miserable experiences in your life and in your family. And it will bring about, he says, a precious amount of riches. Again, I don't think just monetarily. The idea is there's a wealth to be experienced in life that's way beyond just material things alone. In the wealth of just a, a happy marriage and a healthy marriage and a healthy home life. And so, again, he reminds us to build wisely, use understanding as we build and establish our lives and homes. Verse 5, a wise man is strong. Yes, a man of knowledge increases strength, for by wise counsel you will wage your own war, and in a multitude of counselors there is Safety. So notice verse 5 shows us that wisdom and knowledge actually make a person, he says, stronger. The wise man is strong and he increases strength. So the writer tells us wisdom and knowledge actually make us a stronger person. That is, they give us a stronger character. They give us a stronger ability to make good decisions. Having wisdom and knowledge are going to give you and I a stronger lifestyle. It's going to give us a safer 
lifestyle and a safer way of life where we protect ourselves from problematic things. And the contrast of that is true as well. Just like wisdom and knowledge make a life stronger, foolishness and a lack of wanting to know how to do things properly and being ill-informed, that does the exact opposite. It makes a person's life very weak. And it makes a person's life very vulnerable. They have a weak character and they're very weak in their decision making and they have a very vulnerable, unsafe way of living. And so here he says, take advantage of building strength into your life through wisdom. And then he says, for by wise counsel, you will wage your own war, verse six, and in the multitude of counselors, they're safe. You know, he comes back to the same idea again of benefiting from a few healthy people in our life that we respect that can give us good, wise counsel, godly counsel from the word of God and just you know, good experience in life, reputable people. And notice, he describes life like, like a war. He says, in this life, you will wage your warfare. And the truth of the matter is, that's kind of what life's like, right? It's, I've found the longer I've lived, life's not really as much of a playground as it kind of is sort of a battleground. And a war consists of many ongoing battles over time, with all types of different enemies involved, right? And so there are many enemies and many battles. There's the enemy of our own sinful flesh that we battle against. There's the world that we battle against, an enemy that's trying to oppose our Christian lifestyle and conform us to its pattern. And then there's the devil himself. And so we have various enemies coming against us. We're fighting battles on all different fronts at times. And he says, look, the best way to fight your battles and seek to be victorious when you engage in war is by seeking out and following, look what he says, wise counsel. Don't run it alone, he's saying. Take advantage of your comrades. Take advantage of your you know, uh, you know, higher ranking officers. Take advantage of those that God's put around you who you can seek out wise counsel to wage your war to be able to win and be victorious through the multitude of counselors, he says, there's safety. Again, as we take advantage of input and following the reliable input that's given to us, he says, it's one of the safeguards in our lives as people. It protects us, right? Because we all have battles, we all have enemies, and sometimes we have blind spots and weaknesses, and that multitude of counselors can keep us safe at times. It helps us stay in check and protects us from ending up being defeated and having regrets. Verse 7, wisdom is too lofty for a fool. The idea is it's too high, it's above reach. And he does not open his mouth in the gate. Now, the picture here seems to be the fool, and the word speaks literally of a hard-headed, arrogant person. So it's the picture of the one who kind of thinks they know it all, and the exact opposite of the prior verse, they don't want input from anyone else. They don't see the value or need of getting counsel from anyone else. And so they lack humility, and because of that, wisdom is outside of their reach. See, when someone's hard-headed and arrogant, and they think they know it all, and they don't want input from anyone, such a person, because of that lack of humility, they're never going to obtain wisdom. It's always going to be outside of their reach until they humble themselves and realize they need the help and input of others around them. And he mentions that in the city gate, that fool doesn't open his mouth. Now remember, the city gate was the place, remember, all the elders and the leaders would gather together at the gate of the city, and that's where they would hold court and they would decide matters, where they would make 
uh, battle plans to go into warfare. It was the place where the wise men of the city gathered, to, gathered together and they strategized and they made decisions and judgments as they talked through things together. And notice, the arrogant fool does not open his mouth, he says, in the setting of those wise men in the city gate. Do you know why? Because nobody wants their advice. <laughs> Because all those wise people in the city gate who realize, hey, we're the wise men and we're all talking and collaborating and learning from one another and listening to each other and at times saying, you know what, Bob, I think I'm wrong. Maybe you're right in this situation and deferring to one another and you know, collaborating to try and make good decisions and protect their blind spots. But he says when someone's life is lived foolishly, then their input is not really desirable. I mean, how many people go and ask a fool for advice? Right, And so he says here, when people don't listen to us, sometimes the other side of that that we have to live by, that when people don't seem like they want to listen to us, sometimes we have to ask, could that be that they don't respect us? And perhaps is the first thing that we need to do is to try and earn people's credibility by living more wisely in front of them and earning the right to speak into their lives. Because he says, nobody wants to hear the fool. And so one of the best ways for us to gain an audience and opportunity to speak into people's lives is to establish credibility. And as we do that and we show them a wise way of living, then we earn greater opportunity for them to want to listen to us, to let them hear what we have to say from time to time. Verse 80 says, he who plots to do evil will be called a schemer and the devising of foolishness is sin. And the scoffer is an abomination to men. Now, schemers basically refer to those who you know, think out and engage in secretive plans to do something wrong or to do something illegal or sneaky in order to gain some advantage for themselves. In other words, they're the type of people, schemers, who they work a plan to manipulate people. They know how to spin a story, to lie, cheat, steal, whatever they need to do, always for their own self-advantage always for their own benefit. And those who are schemers and come up with these kind of schemes and manipulate situations and take advantage of people, he says, they are purposely devising what is sinful, he says, in their foolishness, and they're not even bothered over doing it. And he says, what's even worse, not only what they're doing to people, but he says, they are bringing about tremendous disgust and disdain in people who know them in their outlook towards them. You see what he says? The schemer devising and plotting. and do, He says that that person becomes an abomination to men. That's a strong word again there. Abomination means disgust. And he says when people are always scheming and doing this and you know working angles and abusing and taking advantage of people and working their schemes to always try and benefit themselves and just railroading everybody else, he says that person is doing one thing. They're creating a lot of haters. Because there are a lot of people who are going to just look at them and just the very thought of them, just they just are disgusted by them. And so again, he cautions against the foolishness of living in such a way. Verse 10, great verse in our times of difficulties. He says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Now again, adversity speaks of facing hardship, difficulty. It speaks of going through struggles or enduring some misfortune, hardship. And, and the idea of, of adversity is when you're under heavy pressure in life. And look what he says here. 
when we go through adversity, it reveals to us as well as reminds us this very reality that sometimes that becomes the testing ground for us to see where we're really at as a person. Again, God always knows where we're at. It's not like when a storm comes or a trial happens or when we're squeezed under pressure that God's going to be surprised what comes out of me. Oh, I didn't know that was in there, Tony. I didn't know you would respond like that, or I didn't know you'd handle that that way, or, or, or say those things. God always knows, but sometimes God allows the storm or the adversity or the trial or the difficulty as a way to reveal to us where we're truly at, to let us see what's true of ourselves. And look, the very fact that he speaks of adversity here reveals and reminds to us that we will all, all of us, face days of adversity from time to time. To live is to struggle on this earth. To navigate life on this earth is to go through degrees of adversity and hardship. And look, folks, that can be for all different reasons, right? Sometimes we face adversity, if we're very honest, because we created a little bit of our own adversity. And we made some bad choices, or we made a bad choice, or we you know, made some poor decisions, or we disobeyed the Lord. And... and kind of self-inflicted trials, right? And like Jonah. And in our rebellion, now we're in a storm and we're struggling. And, and, and so sometimes we're in adversity because we create our own hardship, but other times we're facing adversity, hardship, difficulty. We go through a misfortune in our life or a tragedy or we're under great pressure and you've done nothing wrong. You're just still on earth. And so whether it's a tragedy, a hardship, a loss of a loved one, you know, some crisis comes. Part of life is adversity. It's a part of what we experience while we're still living on earth. It's what makes us crave heaven to a degree. And it is one of the things that thankfully God at least redeems our adversities. God never wastes a trial. He permits them, he allows them in his sovereign filter of wisdom he permits and allows challenges and hardship and even a degree of adversity. He doesn't shield us from every difficulty in life. That's not reality. But yet, notice, adversity, what it does, he says it has a way to test our strength because he says if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. And the idea of fainting there speaks basically of quitting, right? Giving up, giving in saying, I'm done, walking away. And so adversity kind of tests our strength. It tests our resolve. It tests our commitment to what is right. And the question is, is when the adversity comes, what we see by way of the test and the evaluation is how do I handle the adversity? How do I navigate it? Because I'm being tested by this adversity. My thoughts are struggling and I'm questioning things or I'm tired and I'm weary or I'm hurting. And this seems difficult, and I can't... Pro and again, when we're going through it, the question becomes, the test is, how do we navigate it? Do we faint in the midst of it? The idea is, do we give up? Do we quit? Do we just, you know, reveal, hey, my strength really isn't very strong. My commitment isn't really genuine. I quit. I'm tired of doing the right thing. It's not worth it. I'm walking away. And again, so sad sometimes when on occasion an adversity comes into the life even of God's people sometimes and the option becomes bended knee or broken back and sometimes Christians refuse to bend the knee, they take the broken back and then they just get really angry and paralyzed mentally and spiritually and emotionally and they get angry at God 
and they get bitter at God, and that's never what God's heart is. God's heart is never to do that. God's not trying to crush us. God crushed his son. So wisdom realizes it's that adversity that we go through that causes us to see really how our strength really is spiritually. Are we going to keep trusting the Lord? Are we going to keep doing what's right even when we don't feel like doing what's right? Are we going to keep going and honoring Jesus in the midst of the fire and through the hardship and as we have to face the misfortune and we can't change the misfortune and we got to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23 says again. He says, leads us by green pastures and still waters, but then he says, he walks us through the valley of the shadow of death. And notice, what do you do when you're in the valley of the shadow of death? Walk. You just keep walking. You just keep putting one foot in front of the other. You don't faint. You don't give up. You don't give in no matter what you're feeling or what you're thinking. And he says, if and when we do that, sadly, we've just revealed that our, our strength is rather small. Our commitment is rather minimal. And sometimes it's the greatest test. Look, what wisdom realizes is this, is that we must receive and depend upon the strength of the Lord. That's why it's in the times of adversity that we need the strength of the Lord. That's the only way that we will navigate and honestly get through the adversities. You know, let, let me leave you this evening. It's maybe a good place to, to finish off. I just want to read you the words of Paul that are coming actually to my mind as we're talking about this very uh, verse here, as, as Paul's talking about the hardship that he went through one time in his life. Just listen to Paul's words as he was brought to a place that he was overwhelmed with adversity and hardship. And look, let me just say, one of the dumbest things people say, and even as Christians, we have this cliche, silly statement, God will never give you more than what you can handle. Next time someone tells you that, say, that is utterly unbiblical. God will never give you more than he can handle. There's lots of times God allows us and gives us more in our lot in life with adversities, whether we create them or it's just life trials, that it's more than we can handle. But the question is, it's not more than he can handle. And sometimes it's that test to show us our strength is weak and we need his strength. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 1, we don't want you to be ignorant or unaware, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia. Listen to what he says, that we were burdened beyond measure. Above what we can handle, he says. Above strength, so that we despaired even of life. In other words, Paul's saying, we, we didn't even know if we were going to survive it. It felt that bad. We literally were saying, I don't know if I'm going to be able to survive this, God. I don't know if I can make it through this. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, who raises the dead, who delivers us from so great a death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will deliver us, you also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given to many on our behalf. Notice, we were pressed to a place beyond human strength that we might learn to trust not in ourselves, but in God. Sometimes that's what the adversity does. It reveals to us we need to sink our roots deeper into the strength and the help of God. And listen, if, and I don't mean in any way to be insensitive, if some degrees of at times human adversity 
force us, if nothing else, to sink our roots down deeper into our relationship with the living God who we will be with for all of eternity. At the end of the day, there is, from eternity's perspective, a value in what came out as the result of that. And I'm not saying the pain is not a real thing. It is. None of us like adversity. None of us are immune to it. But there are things to be learned through it. And God says, don't faint. Don't give up. Seek the Lord. Put your roots down in him and keep walking forward. Don't give up. Don't give in. God says, just keep leaning in until you cross into eternity. And then everything is okay, right? Everything is okay. Then let's stand together.